Growing up in the South, I remember we would drive past hitchhikers on the side of the road, hoping to catch a ride. I would ask my mom, why don't we stop and help them? If they need help, why can't we give them a ride? My mom would always reply that we couldn't, and that when I started driving, I never should either. After all, it was dangerous to pick up hitchhikers. She's told me the story of the hitchhike killer to scare me away from picking up hitchhikers. That makes me wonder, who was the hitchhike killer? Today, we're going to take a deep dive into Happy Valley's own serial killer. In 1946, James Hall was convicted for the murder of his wife. Then, with a freshly shaven head, he was led by prison guards to the electric chair. With a smile on his face, he turned to the guards and said, I'm not afraid, boys, and then laughs as he says his final words, I can take it. This is the story of James Red Weyburn Hall, a cab driver who, from 1938 to 1945, murdered over 20 people, coming up on unnatural acts in the natural state. A maniac, a raving thing. There is a fifth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. We all go a little mad sometimes. This is Unnatural Acts in the Natural State. James Hall was born in January of 1921 in Happy Valley, Arkansas. James was described as being very large and strapping, and was given the nickname Red because of his red hair. His father, Samuel Jerome Hall, was a stern Baptist minister and farmer, who was said to not believe in sparing the rod. Actually, he was said to be straight up abusive, both physically and mentally. When Red was 12 years old, he suffered a traumatic head injury that was said to have triggered a personality disorder. Since the injury, he was often described as narcissistic and just never the same. It's debatable whether or not these tendencies came as a result of the injury, or if they were always there and only became visible when he was older. I would imagine that a 12-year-old who is being abused by his father would have to build up some sort of safeguard to the people around him, like some sort of cocky nature to possibly hide his insecurities. He was also described as charismatic and easy to talk to. We do know that he did have other methods of escaping his father's wrath, besides a front of character. Oftentimes, Red could be found sneaking off to explore the woods of the surrounding areas. This developed into him wandering around Saline County, which led to him dropping out of school in the 8th grade and hitchhiking all across the country. He absolutely loved hitchhiking. So much so that he actually hitchhiked all the way up to Detroit to try to get a job in the automotive industry there. But after being turned away for being too young, he hitchhiked to Kansas. It was there that he would commit his first murder. Though the identity of the victim was never confirmed, we know that she was a colored woman in Kansas who, according to reports from Red, was attempting to rob him. Red says that he killed her in self-defense. He was never convicted of this murder. Then, in the following year, 1938, two significant things happened to Red. First, he met Walsy McKee, who would go on to be his first wife. He then consecutively committed his first 11 murders. Despite being known as the Hitchhike Killer, these first murders actually had nothing to do with hitchhiking. After the incident in Kansas, Red moved to Arizona and got a job as a truck driver for a farm. The farm had several migrant Mexican workers, whom he seemingly got along with very well. He seemed to be on the straight and narrow at this point. Hall, being described as nice and clean, would go on to brutally murder 10 of these migrant workers. This including the murder of the black woman in Kansas would make for 11 murders all in the year of 1938. Without any known provocation, he would take them out into the desert, one by one, to either bludgeon them to death or shoot them in the head. In 1939, Red and Walsey married. 
Wolsey fell in love with Red because of his burly physique and because of his stories that he would tell of his travels around the country. After being married, they only had two children. One unfortunately died at childbirth before their second son was born in 1943. All this time, Red still went on his travels. He was, after all, still a lover of hitchhiking and travel. Despite his wife's protest, he left her at home for weeks at a time to raise their son and maintain their farm with no more support than an occasional picture or postcard. She would actually have to get support with the farm from her in-laws, Red's family. Despite being unhappy in the marriage, she never tried to or even implied leaving him. Walsey was a very meek and mild-natured person who never really raised a fuss about anything. Her mother, however, who was living with him on the farm, was. She didn't approve of Red, and they often disagreed. But still, despite this, she opted to stay with Red. In the end, though, it was actually Red who asked for the divorce. His reasoning for this was because, and I quote, her mother was always sticking her nose into their business. So they parted ways and he sent $10 a month of alimony to support his son. In 1944, after being drafted and later discharged from the Navy for quote, indifference, he met his second wife, Fayreen Clemens. Fayreen, Red soon realized, was nothing like Walsey. Clemens was described as feisty, independent, and bullheaded. Despite this, though, she fell in love with him, and they married. Now, Red still wanted to continue hitchhiking and traveling the country. Fayreen was surprisingly okay with the idea of this, but on one condition. Red had to take her along with him. He obliged, and it seems he had found his match, right? He had a woman who also loved the traveling lifestyle, the one Red had grown accustomed to. But not all was what it seemed. Fayreen, when she would come home to visit her family on the farm, was oftentimes seen with bruises. We can't forget the violent nature of Red. He abused her, knocking her around for various reasons. Around June of 1944, she left Red, but she did decide to give him another chance. This would, of course, be a decision that would seal her fate. In September of 1944, she wanted to go on a trip to a ballroom slash nightclub called the Rainbow Garden. She invited her friend Katie Bryant. At the end of a night of dancing, her feet were aching, so she wanted to leave by way of the elevator in the building. Red, for seemingly no reason at all other than cruelty, wanted the three of them to travel by staircase, despite the pain in her feet. This started a fight between the two of them, and by the time they got to the car, they were very heated. Red struck her harder than he had ever done before, and Faye announced that she was leaving him. The three of them got into the car, and Red dropped Katie off at her house. That was the last time anybody saw Fayreen Clemens Hall alive. That night, Red beat his wife to death. He took her body near the Riverside Golf Course in Little Rock, Arkansas, and left the body in the Arkansas River. After 10 days of no contact with Fayreen, her family grew worried about her and reported her missing. Despite Red being evasive to Faye's family, he could not hide from the police. At the time, he was working as a taxi driver in Little Rock. The cab company that he worked for really liked him, so much so that when he would leave on his cross-country hitchhiking trips, they would just rehire him as soon as he got back. Two police officers showed up at the taxi station to question Red about the disappearance of Fayreen. He just simply claimed that he had no idea where she went. His story was that she had left him that night and he hadn't seen her since. I mean, the police hadn't any evidence proving otherwise, so they had to take him on his word. They kept an eye on him while they continued their investigation. Then, in January of 1945, James Red Hall went on a killing spree in Arkansas. We don't exactly know how many people fell victim to Hall's rampage. Among his suspected victims were Carl Hamilton, a black barber and bootlegger who had been shot twice with a 45 caliber pistol and whose body was found slumped against a tree near Camden, Arkansas. E.C. Adams, a husband and father from Humboldt, Kansas, who was on his way to start a new job at a naval ordnance plant, also in Camden, Arkansas. Also, a 30-year-old named Doyle Mulheron, who was a driver for Western Meat Company in Little Rock, Arkansas, whose body was found a week after the Adams murder, near the Bayou Meadow Bridge outside Stuttgart, Arkansas. Another suspected Hall victim was J.D. Newcomb Jr., chief boiler inspector for the state labor department, who was traveling to Clarksville from Little Rock. 
His charred body was found in his partially burned car in Cleburne County. It's also said that he killed a doctor and a soldier in Kansas, a Texas Bible salesman, and an Oklahoma man, all in 1944, and another Oklahoma man in 1940. For years, Red had hitchhiked all across the country, mainly Arkansas, killing people who would pick him up. His charismatic aura and friendly demeanor seemed to waive any dangerous notion that motorists might have had. They would pick up this lonely and friendly traveler, being good Samaritans, and pay the price for it with their lives, all at the hands of James Red Hall. It was until Mulheron's body was found that police caught onto his trail. Eyewitness reports told police that they saw Doyle Mulheron, the previously mentioned truck driver, struggling in the cab of his truck against a big man with wavy red hair, matching the description of Red. Apparently, Hall was getting sloppy with hiding his murders. When the also previously mentioned J.D. Newcomb Jr. was killed, it was so close to the highway that a couple of people had actually slowed down to check out what was going on. After seeing two men fighting, they opted to drive away instead of investigating further, figuring they were just a couple of drunks fighting. After killing Newcomb, shooting him point blank in the face, he drove the car almost 300 miles one way and torched the car. He took Newcomb's coat and took a bus back to Little Rock. And because of the people who witnessed him getting on the bus, they were able to confirm to the police that he was, in fact, wearing Newcomb's coat, connecting Red to the murder. All of this to say that if Red was off his rocker before, he was far gone now, not even seeming too concerned about covering his tracks anymore. The straw that broke the camel's back that finally led police to conclusively convict Red Hall was because of Lonnie Blaine, another cab driver for the taxi service that Red worked for. Red asked to borrow Lonnie's cab to travel for some business he had to conduct with a barber in Camden, Arkansas. Lonnie, not thinking much of it, trusted his friend and let him borrow his car. Now, Lonnie was known to keep a 45 caliber pistol in the side pocket of his car door, as a lot of cab drivers do for protection, even today. Well, when Red returned the car to Lonnie, he checked the gun and saw that two bullets had been fired from it. Afterwards, Lonnie listened to the radio and heard a news story that caught his attention. There was a barber in Camden, Arkansas who had been murdered with a 45. You guessed it, two bullets shot. Lonnie knew that Red had done it, but didn't know how to go about reporting it as he himself was an ex-convict with a record and would then be the chief suspect. The only person he told about this situation was a close family member. Remember that, because it's important later. Also around this time, Red had gotten into a fight with somebody in an alleyway in Little Rock. He beat the man almost to death and was hospitalized for several months after. He was actually arrested for this and confessed to beating the man. However, he got off after using his signature charm to convince the judge that he terribly regretted it, telling him that he was a son of a preacher and a Navy veteran. He straight up manipulated this judge into letting him off of a full-on assault charge. The police officer who originally investigated Red heard about this. About the same time, Lonnie's family member tipped off the police of Lonnie's gun. This blew the top off the case, and county and state police arrested him and brought him in for interrogation. After letting him stew a bit, he finally confessed to being a murderer. He continued to share every gruesome detail of every memory that he could remember. He said that he killed so many people through years of hitchhiking that he couldn't remember a lot of the names or details about the murders. To this day, we still don't have confirmation on just how many people he killed simply because he killed too many people to remember. He led police to Feyreen's remains by the golf course and the police raided his house where it took two trips to remove all of the incriminating evidence, mostly weapons, connecting him to the string of murders. Then, in January of 1946, he was sentenced to death, and in May of that same year, he was electrocuted to death by way of an electric chair. He was laughing and smiling to the very end, showing no remorse whatsoever for the gruesome murders that he had committed. The thing that's compelling to me about this case is he had no reason to murder these people. Sure, he robbed some of them, but he never really made very much money from it. He didn't really need their money. 
He actually had a pretty decent wage working as a cab driver. There's also literally no pattern to his victims, other than them being kind enough to give a stranger a ride. He just enjoyed killing, and because of that, he was executed, bringing all of his victims to justice. One thing is for certain, James Red Hall was pure evil. Hey, thanks for listening to Unnatural Acts in the Natural State. Be sure to follow us and other awesome shows on Facebook, Instagram, MySpace, well, probably not in MySpace. But check us out. We're the Washita Podcast. That's podcast plural. Also, be sure to check out the other amazing shows at thewashitapodcast.com. That's again, podcast plural. With an S. At the end of it. Someone should really look into that MySpace thing. For research for this episode, I used ArkansasOnline.com, Murderpedia.com, and an interview with true crime author and Red Hall historian Janie Nesbitt-Jones, conducted by Most Notorious. Links for my sources are in the description. Credit for this episode idea goes to my mom. Script written by and all audio production by myself, Trey Youngdahl. Check out my website, TreyYoungdahl.com. That's T-R-E-Y-Y-O-U-N-G-D-A-H-L.com. Follow me on Facebook at Trey Youngdahl. Again, that's T-R-E-Y-Y-O-U-N-G-D-A-H-L. Keep the shameless plug going by following me on Instagram at youngish.trey. That's Y-O-U-N-G-I-S-H dot Trey. Thanks for listening, and remember to stay safe and stay spooky.